Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is Tim Trelaw, and I play the third Doctor for Big Finish Productions. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the explosive task of discussing in story order, 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 God, I'm even tripping over words like that now, all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt and we have an equally explosive three-person discussion panel that does not work. That only works if one of us or all of us are lactose intolerant, we've just had milk. (laughs) <laughs> including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979 that would be me and yes I have just had ice cream so God only knows what's going to happen there at least it's better than Lazar's disease <laughs> there's our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes and has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes hello Dalton Hello, hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alex and... (laughs) It's who now? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Or a, a reasonable facsimile of me. Just don't ask me to say the words reasonable facts. <laughs> That's why <laughs> I ask you not to do them. There we go. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing, though I just can't see why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you store them in a rundown ship sitting in the center of the known universe, just waiting to explode. <laughs> just, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. There, there have been times I've wanted to blow up my Target collection, never more so than now. And as usual, <laughs> we'd like to thank our regular patrons. I'm not going to try to do this in a deep breath. 
Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Milton Welling, Louise Dennis, and Bluey. Thank you all. Thanks, people. Yes, thank you, thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter Davison's second season as the Doctor as we discuss the novelization of Terminus. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Terminus, adapted by John Lidecker from the script by Stephen Gallagher that aired from 2.15.83 to 2.23.83, published by Target Books in June 1983. As of this recording in June 2023, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an underbridged audiobook, 159 pages. 1983. So this one is having an anniversary. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Stephen Gallagher before, and we've talked about the fact that he writes under the pen name John Lidecker before, when we had our discussion of Warrior's Gate. Another long novel with no chapters, not that long ago. This is his second and last contribution to the series, despite having begun another story proposal not long after it. It seems like John Nathan Turner and Eric Sayward make more people swear off TV writing than anybody else. (laughs) Except he didn't swear off TV writing, he just swore off Doctor Who writing. He has since gone on to write and direct several other TV productions, including the series Eleventh Hour, starring Patrick Stewart. Trying to drive up his rates by uh, driving out competitors. Apparently. I think that would be the case. I said last time we'd take this opportunity to talk about Valentine Dial, who plays the Black Guardian, even though there is significantly less of him in the story, and there's even less of him in the book, which is just astonishing. He's often called the British Vincent Price, though it's just as valid to say that Vincent Price was the American Valentine Dial. As we said last time, Dial was for the longest time best known as the narrator The Man in Black for the radio series Appointment with Fear, of which only four episodes still exist. Although his movie career peaked in the 40s, he made frequent appearances on the BBC radio series The Goon Show, starring, among others, Peter Sellers, in which he sent up his own radio persona. Sci-fi fans will know him as the voice of Deep Thought in the BBC version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The answer to the great question of life, the universe, and everything is... It was a tough assignment. 42? He appeared in The Haunting in 1962, the original Casino Royale in 1967, and even co-hosted a music variety show called Decidedly Dusty with Dusty (laughs) Springfield. What? Yeah. No episodes of that survive. I can't even imagine what that would have looked like. Oh, I wonder if that was the pitch. People will tune in because they can't even imagine what that must be like. Yes, it's 
It's like this cartoon I once saw of Ike and Tina Turner, but it's Eisenhower beside Tina Turner. It's got that feel to it. <laughs> yes. it's, it's a bit like having Vincent Price co-host Laugh-In, even though he probably would have, and that sounds kind of awesome. By the 1980s, Valentine Dial's acting career had dwindled significantly owing to poor health, and I know how he feels. After appearing here and in the next story is The Black Guardian, he would act in Doctor Who just one more time in a radio play by Eric Sayward called Slipback, which has an underlying plot which is suspiciously similar to the one in Terminus. And yes, we will be reading the novelization of Slipback as well. He recorded that play just 14 days before his death at the age of 77. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of departing actors, though not dying actors, this would be Sarah Sutton's last appearance as Nyssa on screen until she participated in the 1993 charity special Dimensions in Time, which we will also be reading the novelization of thanks to Jim Sangster. (laughs) Did you lose a bet to Jim Sangster? No, no, it's just he wrote it and we're going to appreciate it. Damn it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, whether we want to or not. (laughs) Actually, we will. It's probably going to be one of the better written novelizations we ever look at. She now says, Sarah Sutton says this, that she is the one who came up with the idea of slipping her skirt off in the story as a bit of fan service for the dads at home. Though she now thinks, given the backlash it caused, it may not have been the best idea. And in fact, it is at a weird spot. And she's in some pain from Lazar's disease, so she slips her skirt off because she's so hot. And it's like, how is this fan service? I didn't even remember that being on screen, so to speak, in the story, just the skirt being found. It's briefly mentioned. It's very briefly mentioned in the book. It's not given nearly the focus, literally, that it is on screen. She and Peter Davison also came up with the idea of having her kiss the doctor on the cheek when saying goodbye, which apparently got producer John Nathan Turner so riled up that when it came time for Tegan to leave the following year, he was on set for the recording of her goodbye scene to make sure this didn't happen again. Wait, what, what so offended him? The doctor touching his companions. Okay. John Nathan Turner was a very strange man. Just very strange. No hanky-panky in the TARDIS. It's like, when has there ever been hanky-panky in the TARDIS? And how is kissing someone goodbye on the cheek hanky-panky? But there it is. Sadly, for both Sutton and the rest of the production team, this story was the epitome of a troubled production. Owing to an industrial action, director Mary Ridge was given one less day to record the story than she normally would have had. So that's big. Then they had a power outage, which caused them a two-hour delay on the very first day, followed by the discovery that one set had been constructed off its marks, meaning she had to record scenes on other sets that weren't yet lit properly. One of the robots didn't work. The costumes for the veneer were designed to be purely decorative, and thus they had to be adapted for the fight scene, since otherwise they were very noisy and flimsy. The Raider helmets fogged up because they weren't properly ventilated. Let's not even talk about the Raider costumes because actually, go ahead and Google Terminus costumes and you'll see what I mean. Because those costumes, 
it, it looks like they are part of some sort of gay 80s hairband. It is terrifying. Actually, when you say gay 80s hairband, I would expect great hair and costumes. You would think so. Yeah, but no. No, they're not. Gallagher was asked to write a two-minute scene to extend episode one, and for some reason he instead extended the entire story by two minutes by adding in additional scenes. And he wanted to call Carrie Yoni until someone pointed out that that's a Sanskrit word for <laughs> vagina. He really should know yeah. that after the 60s. Yeah. yeah. All of these problems and delays caused the production to have to come back and finish filming a few days after Sarah Sutton's farewell party, which apparently was gloomier than usual because John Nathan Turner was in a bad mood, probably owing to the hanky-panky aforesaid. Peter Davison, who was already upset at losing the companion he thought fit his doctor best, was even more annoyed at the rushed pace of the recording and the short shrift the actors were given then after the story was aired, an advocacy group for lepers called the BBC out for perpetuating stereotypes about leprosy, which is what the story does. Needless to say, this is no one's favorite story to have recorded, and it doesn't tend to make the top ten list for lots of people. Uh, just a few more bits of trivia. Carrie was played by Liza Goddard, who was Colin Baker's ex-wife at that point. And all the names of the story are based in Norse mythology. And that's all you need to know about that. Fun facts. <laughs> so let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? I'm going to let you two fight it out amongst yourselves for this one. Well, Allison just did one recently, so I don't mind uh, uh, taking the helm on this one. All right. Thank you. When the TARDIS console is willfully sabotaged, the Doctor's time machine becomes dimensionally unstable and begins to dissolve. The area immediately affected is the room where Nyssa is working by herself. As the creeping instability closes in on her, the TARDIS locks onto the nearest passing spacecraft and the process of collapse is halted, but there is no sign of Nyssa. Hoping that she has escaped onto the strangely deserted host liner, the Doctor goes looking for her. Whether or not he finds her, Getting back to the TARDIS will be no easy business. Dot, dot, dot. Ooh-wee-oo. Yeah. Yes, just as the story is no easy business, at least the on-screen version, anyway. So, Dalton, when you first got this, what was your first impression? <laughs> Can I ask who that's supposed to be on the cover with the Doctor? That's the Black Guardian. Okay. Ah, I assumed he was one of the lasers. No. Lazars? Yeah, Lazar's no, he's not. <laughs> I kept saying laser as well. Yeah, seeing this, he looks like some post-punk reject flock of seagulls. That I don't, I don't get him at all. I was not getting Black Guardian from him. <laughs> You'll notice he also has a bird on his head. Yeah, that's what's making me think. Yeah, the the hair is just like, what is going on here? And again horrible picture of the doctor no shock um, yes. <laughs> but much like last time the back cover gives me just enough information to get me interested it doesn't give a ton away and i am in enthused about what i'm going to be reading uh, and i'm looking forward to it i had some suspicions that this may be a last story for nissa i did not fear that she was going to be dead but i did fear that Something was going to happen that she was not going to be with the TARDIS crew anymore. And that happened. So 
Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I was getting, the vibes I was getting from the start. That awful cover would do that. It really would. <laughs> Allison, what about you? I thought uh, the Doctor and Jeffrey Rush were dying in various, two different stages of dying from a terribly <laughs> painful gastrointestinal disorder. Uh, maybe kind of a maybe bad shellfish. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe Jeffrey Rush has been on the beach just picking up things and eating them that's also what happened to his hair sort of uh, yeah. dipped into a to a tidal pool uh and then as i read the back summary i think i read it three times and i it was at the end of a long day but my brain just refused to hold on to it something about sort of a reverse mandala effect of the gradient here and my brain would not lock on to the nearest passing blurb uh so i went in saying okay <laughs> Jeffrey Rush is dying, and maybe Nissa disappeared. I had very low expectations based on just the the cover. Hmm. Okay. And that's understandable, because it is really an ugly cover. I mean, all the Davison covers, to some degree, are ugly in one way or another, except for Snake Dance and Enlightenment, and possibly some of the later ones. But Having read this, I'm actually surprised it's a Black Guardian, because I thought it was trying to communicate... You know, pain, distress, illness, something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and probably that was Valentine Dial's life at the time, which is really sad. But no, no, it's it's meant to be the Black Guardian. And we're not going to get to see what the White Guardian looks like, but imagine that outfit in white. Does he also have the yes. <laughs> flock of seagulls here? He has a dove <laughs> on his head. Is he also not feeling his best? Yes. Yeah, it's it's really it's a choice. It's a choice, <laughs> shall we say. Every every costuming thing in the story really is a choice, including those damn raiders. It's just yeah. God. Whenever I think of the black the black and white guardian, I picture them in like ar- suits of armor for some reason. Really? <laughs> I th- I probably just played way too many uh RPG games, but um huh. Yeah, when I think of the Guardians, I think of them Nazgul-ish. <laughs> and just more than this man that looks like he found a coat in a thrift shop and a fancy hat. And put it on. Like, I, don't, I don't get it. But maybe on screen he, he at least has the air of the Black Guardian down. So we'll see once I watch it. Yeah. Some warning about that. If you enjoyed this book, you may have some difficulty enjoying the TV version. I'm doomed then, because I actually enjoy this quite a bit. And yeah, you're not you're not selling the actual episodes. No. In fact I'm I'm warning you outright because <laughs> Get out while you I, can. I, yeah, I had my worries about this one for just that reason, because the TV story is notoriously gnomic. It's very difficult to figure out what's going on in it. That was not the case with the book. Had you ever read the book before no. reading it? No, okay. I hadn't. I'd, I had always, I had always avoided reading this novelization for just that reason. Which is weird because I think I said the same thing about Warrior's Gate, didn't I? Mm-hmm. And I ended I'm up liking sure, that yeah. one. Yeah. So it's like, okay, Stephen Gallagher. I am sorry. I have just uttered such utter calumny against you for all these years because. Yeah, these two books are... Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, obviously. But just, <laughs> yeah, suffice it to say, the TV version just 
isn't. Yeah. By all means, watch it, but it's terrible. Interesting that it's the same writer as Warrior's Gate, because liner full of comatose passengers is a very specific scenario. It's like, <laughs> oh, another liner full of comatose passengers story. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's not completely original, but um, it's interesting that they would line up quite that closely. Yeah. And companion leaving to continue their life's work. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. That and this whole idea of evil ending up being just bureaucratic grunt work. Mm-hmm. The slavers in Warrior's Gate are just so bored with their job. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, tedious in and out, in and out. The veneer have the same problem on Terminus. Now, of course, they're slaves, so it's not really a job at all. But they've got the same sort of thing of, oh, my God, the endless paperwork. And, oh, here's another one. Oh, we're going to have to fill out a form C slash five slash two. It's just like, I thought it worked very well that the veneer were not gratuitously cruel to the patients and didn't even wish them ill. I thought it was a nice change of pace to have, instead of an evil mining company, an evil uh, for-profit healthcare company uh, (laughs) selling treatments that have not been through proper research testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this reminds me a lot of the American healthcare system. Yeah, if if the U.S. were to find some ship hovering in space that just happened to have the right amount of radiation inside itself that it could cure something, they would probably start sending people there. Instead of throwing radiation at the patients, they're throwing the patients at the radiation. Essentially, <laughs> yes. yeah. I was gonna say, in the whole deal with basically tying the veneers healthcare of Hydromel to their job. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am charging the patients an arm and a leg for doing it. Even though if they had leprosy, they might be losing an arm and a leg. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. So I thought we actually might be revisiting the same species. Aren't they in East Space? The phasing yeah. lion creatures? No? The Tharls. Yes. Yeah. I thought yeah, we might be revisiting the Tharls. It would just be another freighter full of Tharls. Um, but it wasn't that, but somewhere else we've been recently is the Big Bang. And my question is, is this the same Big Bang, the Big Bang, or is this just a Big Bang and maybe a different one? (laughs) It's the Big Bang. Is it the same one that the master tried to throw them at? Yep. It's a vent one. Okay. So (laughs) throwing ships at the Big Bang is also kind of a specific scenario. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating the similarity there, but we have literally been there pretty recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In such a way that I wasn't sure if it was the same Big Bang because I don't think there was any reference within the story that this was uh, pretty familiar. Yeah. And we will be there again <laughs> because we will have yet another ship in Doctor Who that causes the Big Bang. So there are actually two ships yeah. that cause this, and it's, yeah... It's ridiculous that, one, we should have had this already, and two, that they feel the need to dip into that well yet again. But this one at least has going for it the fact that Stephen Gallagher has written it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting, too, that he expresses that the Big Bang is the beginning of the universe that currently exists, but there also was a universe before 
Yes. So that idea was extremely fascinating to me that, yeah, the idea that there is something that existed before the Big Bang, which everyone thinks is the beginning of everything, but it's like, no, there was something before and then something caused something else to create this universe. Mm -hmm. This is a concept that the new series uh, basically has said isn't true. You have the the Tenth Doctor, for instance, saying, oh, no, no, I don't believe that there was a universe before this one. There couldn't possibly have been a universe before this one. Except there's every evidence in this story that, yes, there was. And that this particular pilot of this Terminus ship is the last survivor of it. It's meant to be very similar to the pilot sequence in Alien. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, the space jockey. Yes, it's meant to be almost exactly like that. Of course, on a BBC budget, it's never going to be like that. But <laughs> the concept is that, that the space jockey somehow created our universe in whatever he was doing. It's never made clear, and that's fine. I'm actually quite taken with the fact that Gallagher isn't hard-pressed to actually explain every single little detail. Yeah. Sometimes giving the hint of something and then allowing the reader to extrapolate is more tantalizing than like actually writing down every stupid little detail because then everyone nitpicks it and finds things that are wrong with it that don't line up. That's where you get all the fandom fights and stuff like that. Sometimes it's just like that little hint of something is so much better and so much more effective at world building. Right. And unfortunately, you can't do it in the TV script. And I think that's what the TV version of the story has going against it. That there are things that are not in the script because there's just not time to explore them. Mm -hmm. And some of those things are really important. There are some really important details that are in this book that are not in the TV version. And once I read the book, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) This other bit is perfectly clear now. Uh, The previous one is still kind of blurry, but it's blurry in a way that actually makes some sense. Whereas on screen, you're like, what the fuck is happening here? So what I'm getting is an idea that the cover is reflectant of the quality of the episode more than the quality of the book. Yeah. It would seem so. Yeah. I'd say that cover was put together in almost as much a slapdash way as the TV episode was. Slapdash may be the wrong word, because that's not giving them the credit that they're due for having worked under extremely difficult conditions to put together that four-part story. That being said, we've said this about stories before. It is possible for somebody to put all the work in the world into something and still produce something that's crappy. Yeah. And that happens. And it does tell you something about getting a story written by somebody who can really write, like Stephen Gallagher, and then it's translated to the screen, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't. Whereas it works, well, it works really well on the page. So let's talk about what we like about the story. (laughs) What particularly is good about it, apart from the lack of chapter breaks, which was, again, just a chore and a half to write notes for. Yeah. I I will say, looking at the page count, seeing how long it was, and then initially starting to read it, I thought, oh, this is going to be a chore. But once I started reading it, it felt like it was going at a pretty good pace. There there were some spots where it felt like we're just running through corridors back and forth. But overall, I felt like the story kept me engaged 
throughout. I felt like all of the characters had interesting things to do. They had wonderful character moments. It wasn't just, as mm. I've said in the past, where it could literally could just be anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We we had great chemistry between Tegan and Turlo. Their interactions were fantastic. The Doctor's interactions with Nyssa were fantastic. Nyssa, again, I know we've said she is usually kind of like a nobody, a blank slate. I felt like she had so much to do in this one. And this really, I got more of an idea of who she is than I have in so many stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably since she was introduced. Yeah. So I think just overall, like there are so many great character moments in this and you, you see the way that they interact and that, that was really well done. Yeah. So we start off with the scene of Tegan giving Turlo the tour. And I feel like this is a writer who actually likes Tegan. Uh, and mm-hmm. we have, towards mm-hmm. the beginning, both the Doctor and Turlo uh, treating her as very easy to manipulate because so she's so easy to set off. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, the writer shows her being extremely aware of what everyone is doing. Mm-hmm. And also being pretty shrewd in her analysis of Turlo as well. Like he's not impressed enough. He should be amazed. Instead, it looks like he's a real estate agent or something like that. Um, <laughs> yes. And then like Dalton was saying, we actually get better brief but illuminating character moments for Tegan and Nyssa in the story than we have in several stories. Two or three scenes where uh, Tegan's informed by her uh, ever so brief and marked by HR interventions flight attendant career, um, but <laughs> which talks about going into a room and like smelling like the, the smelling diesel and different kinds of fumes and whatnot and feeling you know, sort of at home and oriented to it and walking into a room and even before she picks out what kind of an engine room it is sort of or some kind of mechanical yard some kind of figuring out generally what kind of place she's in based on her past experiences and feeling sort of at home there. We see Nissa doing research. And there, I remember my constant refrain was, David, be interested in how the TARDIS works. Try to figure things out. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like both of the companions were interesting and that they were trying to figure things out in a way that makes sense for the background and the personality of the character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like Turlo has given the stories a forward momentum that I felt at the beginning uh, with Castrovalva and then uh, just absolutely plunged into a trough, I felt like. It felt like just sort of a link sausage. And <laughs> this uh, sort of, this running, this assassination plot running in the background, I, I think gives it a little more interest and urgency and texture to the stories that I'm finding more engaging than I found the last several. That is interesting because those of us who have watched these stories for years and years on end kind of get to those bits with Turlow and the Black Guardian and we're like, oh God, not this again. Let's get back to the main plot. But here on the page, that works really well. It was getting sort of intrusive by the end of Modern Undead. Here, it barely registers, probably because Turlo here is much more evil than who he was in the last book. <laughs> well, but yes. also, I like the, the the particular manner of evil. Is He's actually not evil. He's not bloodthirsty. He's just kind of resigned to time to make the donuts, time to kill the doctor. And he's not mind-controlled. It's not like how many 
Chris Claremont stories were there with a person who's mind controlled into actually wanting to murder, wanting to do this or that, wanting to be the double agent, provide information. He's aware of what's going on. He doesn't particularly like it. He doesn't want to go to Black Guardian heaven and spend an eternity <laughs> in mm-hmm. the Black Guardian's presence. But what can you do? <laughs> Gotta punch the clock. And I actually think that's kind of a nice offbeat take on a character like that. He's not agonized. He's not dripping evil. He's just very matter-of-fact manipulative. And I actually thought there were some first-rate character moments with him fixing his facial expression (laughs) for when someone was going to walk into the room and plotting how he will be easy to read so that everyone will see the second layer he wants them to see and not the actual third layer of what's going on. Brief description that I thought really effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those in, those internal moments with Turlo actually won me over in this book. Uh, I know out of the last book I called him Turglo. He's still a turd, but but <laughs> you, with you a capital get, B. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you get you get more of that plotting internal thought for him, and you really kind of understand that that inner machinations. I love you know you're talking about it's just a job. That's a great parallel to what the veneer are doing. You know, they're yeah. just doing a job. Yeah. And so I I love that. He doesn't want the doctor to suffer. He just, you know, he got to punch the clock. Yeah, he's just got to do it. It's he he was chosen. He didn't want to be chosen, but he was. And he's just doing it, but in a, in a way you kind of get that there's a little bit of relief that he actually hasn't been able to make anything happen. <laughs> I I feel like cuz Yes, the, the Guardian's going to berate him and be angry that nothing's happening. But in the same token, when Tegan saves him, and there's a moment where I think that he like puts his hand on her shoulder or something and like expresses gratitude for her saving him. And you can really see that there's some conflict for him about, well, do I like these people? Am I actually able to do this? He has that moment where he thinks, "Is this? should I just kill Tegan? And then like <laughs> explain it as a, an accident to the doctor. Could I do that? So yeah, I, I just think it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And the fact that in that moment that you just talked about, she turns around and she looks at him and he realizes, oh my God, she knows. Yeah. It's like, yeah, she's got your number. She knows exactly what's happening. And she watches him until he's gone down the hallway. <laughs> Yeah. And she actually at that point doesn't know. She just suspects. Yeah. But they they are the way that they alternate being ahead of the other one I I thought was a very nice dynamic. Mhm. And sometimes behind each other, the fact that for instance, the reason why she's coming back before the TARDIS disappears the first time is not because she wants to check to see that he's okay, but because she's already realized this is a bad idea, I should go back to the TARDIS. But he's come out at that point and she doesn't want to look foolish or weak in front of him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not what he's thinking. <laughs> well, there's this nice line here. Um, let's see here. If they met, Turlo had a plausible story ready. He wasn't quite sure what it might be, but extemporization to suit the moment was his main talent. It was why he'd been chosen. Yes. But there's a sense in which that's also why Tegan was chosen to be on the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. She is also very, very good at extemporization to suit the moment. Yeah. And of course, it's, all the, it's what all the doctors are good at, but they are not the... It, 
well, I say they are not the intellectuals that Nyssa is. I feel like we don't have full information yet about what Turlo does and doesn't know how to do. He's obviously very good at tinkering with the Doctor's technology. I don't like the way it's just, he describes it as, Doctor's technology is his strength. This is a bad plan to go at him through his strongest point. So he is in some way much more educated than Tegan, but I like the way they establish that that's not his strength. Being two-faced <laughs> and improvising <laughs> is his strength. Yeah, right. And Tegan is also good at improvising and also has what we call in you know, modern terms high EQ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's very good at reading in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Whereas he's, I guess, very good at presenting in the moment, but she's better at reading than he is at presenting. Right. But just barely. And the fact that we're pulling all of this from a subplot, which on screen reads as, oh, they didn't have anything for Tegan and Turlo to do, so they're crawling around a lot of crawl spaces throughout the story. The fact that we're getting all of this out of that speaks volumes. Yeah. I like the way they're... Absent long enough that it's easy to forget that that story is even going on. Yes. Yeah. It's particularly well done. The pacing when they bring them back is fantastic. The way that Lidecker interweaves all the storylines seems natural. It doesn't seem like we're checking back in with them just to check back in with them. It feels like time has passed for each segment that we go through. When we have the Doctor and Nyssa, then once we come back to Tegan and Turlo, it feels like some time has passed. They have they have gone through some corridors. We don't need to check back in every two seconds to be like, oh, they're still in the corridors. They're still in the vents. You know, it, it feels more natural. And I, I really like that. And and things have happened to them, too. Yeah. Turlo falls down a hole and Tegan has to save him. Mm-hmm. And they almost get taken out by the sterilization process. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, crawling around. It's things actually happening. Yeah. Another couple of nice moments here with Tegan is Tegan is uh, famously screaming. But the doctor's perspective is something was badly wrong. Tegan had always been wary in strange situ- situations, but she was no coward. And as the doctor reached her and she spun around to meet him, it was obvious she was scared. It's not like, oh, the girl's screaming again, which is presumably how the script is written. Oh, the girl is screaming again. But remember, I, I don't mind the companion screaming at all if our perspective is the companion's perspective. Instead mm-hmm. of saying, oh, God, they're screaming again. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, soon after, we have Tegan saying that her area isn't the hard sciences, mm-hmm. but she absolutely gets technology use. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's very good at looking ahead to how it will be used by others. Mm-hmm. Whereas Nissa's, if you have something in the same passage about Nissa having a much more academic approach, much more cautious. Right. And it's, it's, it's a short paragraph, but it's a very nice contrast. Mm-hmm. And even some of those moments where she's doing the companion thing of screaming, when she's being attacked, well, she's not being attacked by them, but they're trying to pull her into the room or whatever. Yeah. And you get that moment where it says, Turlo stood with an expression of dazed wonder at the scene, but then Tegan managed to shake away the bent claw that covered her face for long enough to shout, don't just watch. Yes. <laughs> well, the perspective of the writer seems to be, if Tegan's screaming, she has a very good reason. Yes. <laughs> but I hadn't thought of it in these terms. We just talked about two different comparisons and contrasts, Tegan to Turlo and then Tegan to Nyssa. Mm-hmm. And that's, that was, it was pretty deftly pulled off. 
Yeah, characterization is just strong as anything in this, even the secondary characters. But before we get to the secondary characters, I want to talk about the characterization of the Doctor. Because Gallagher is probably one of the best writers to do the Fifth Doctor that we've had. Because it it's still hard to pin down his characterization, but Gallagher seems to have the key to it. I feel like the main characterization is... Oh no, he has no idea what's going on or what he's going to do next. <laughs> yes, that's but exactly seen mostly it. from the from the companions' perspectives. Oh yeah, yeah, like that moment where they're on the bridge and they've been taken prisoner by Olvir and by Kari, uh, Kari, Kari or Kari. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why am I blinking out on her name right now? But they've been taken prisoner by those two. And Nyssa sees that the doctor is leaning towards her, and she leans in eagerly to find out what his plan is. And the first (laughs) words out of his mouth is, so, got any ideas? (laughs) (laughs) I thought there were two or three instances like that, where someone's looking to see what the doctor is going to do, and he uh, is sort of grasping at straws. Mm -hmm. And yet when he does decide he's going to take some action... He is right there for it. And he has a spine of steel when it comes to it. For example, when he tells Carrie that we're not leaving anybody behind. And she says, you're breaking every rule in the book. And he says, then we work by different books. Mm -hmm. He's very direct about it. Yeah. The Doctor doesn't feel like the main character in the book. Mm -mm. In a lot of the stories we've read, the Doctor is the main character. This, This story... Every character is important. We get so much internalization from everyone. And so even though the doctor usually is the one that solves the problems, in this one, it seems like everyone is solving individual problems that all then come together to solve the larger problem. Yeah, even such drips as Olvir and Carrie. Yeah. Because literally, on screen, the only reason those two characters are there is just to give our regular cast members someone to interact with when they don't have each other to interact with. Hmm. That's it. Whereas I feel like the Doctor is largely defined by his interactions with Carrie in the story. Yeah. No, we're not leaving people behind. No, you're not taking us hostage if you want to ride. (laughs) No, we're not going to play. Largely saying no. Yeah. Yeah. But also, in the past, a character like Carrie would have either, as well, it's nice to see women getting into male dominated films like space piracy. Um, (laughs) Lady Space Pirate would either have been the most amazingly accomplished space pirate to ever live, or an unusually bad one, or an unusually kind hearted one, or an unusually cruel one. And she's none of those things. She's pretty good at it for like the lead of two. (laughs) and experienced and competent but like not amazing but not stupid and that was actually kind of refreshing yeah not not mediocre just you know solid space piracy Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, not gratuitously cruel once again in the same way that turlo's not bloodthirsty uh, the veneer are not kicking the patients for fun and entertainment they're not that concerned with them (laughs) but but they're also not no one is taking their feelings of being trapped or feelings of helplessness or feeling of of feelings of powerlessness or humiliation. No one is taking those feelings out on other people in a gratuitously cruel way, which is actually kind of unusual for a story like this because I'm so used to Terrence Dix's 
petty aristocrats, whom I actually love mm-hmm. as a device. It, it, it's interesting when we don't have that element, when we have so much opportunity for it. Yeah. Here. Mm-hmm. I think the one character that does is, is it Eric or Irek? E- Eric, yeah. Yeah, who's yeah. the leader of the veneer. He's like the only yeah. one, and he is so minor in the story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, going back to the doctor contrasting Carrie, you would think that she would have a character like her would have it really in for the doctor. Mm-hmm. And just as a matter of honor or ego or something like that, she really doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> very pragmatic. And once again, that is different. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, I love the bit when he takes her gun from her and she's like, you took my gun. He's like, oh, and he gives it back. And then she, <laughs> yeah. kind of like the magic is broken. <laughs> And it seems kind of, yes, ineffective, like, well, I guess <laughs> not much use in getting it back. Yes, but that's, that is the point in the story when usually she would set her face like a flint to destroy the doctor using any means necessary and yeah. possibly destroying herself, her own ship, the universe in the process. It's like, damn it. No. Like, All right. Well, <laughs> you got me. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah, she's well aware of her limitations, both she and Olvir, because they both have that recurring line of "I'm combat section. I don't do oh, that." I love that. <laughs> Isn't it <Yes>. wonderful? <laughs> and the doctor parents it back at her at one point and says, "No, you're combat section. Let me do this." <laughs> so here is what I'm relieved about. Mm-hmm. I was sure once it was revealed that Olvir had this upper class background that and we'd already had hints at the beginning that Nissa was probably leaving just because she was sitting around being thoughtful and feeling inadequate I'm, I'm compressing there but mm-hmm. she was at the beginning feeling of the story feeling disconsolate and that's always a sign the companion's going to be heading out I thought she was going to leave with him mm, yeah and he was being set up with the story as a suitably aristocratic mate <laughs> um, and I had forgotten they said his sister who had the disease was dead. Mm. So when Nissa ran into the woman about her age, yeah, um, who was a patient, I'm like, oh, well, that's going to be Ovira's sister. And oh. she's going to stay here with the in-laws. <laughs> and I was kind of bummed about it. And it was not terrible, but it was actually nice that she's at, at the end, uh, she's staying and it's not with him. Uh, not that I'm heartless and hate love, but <laughs> it was just going to be such a cliche way out. Mm. Yeah. That it seemed more consistent with the character that she's going to stay and do medical research. Yeah. And work on this problem instead of, you know, run off with, I don't know, a party shop prince or whatever he was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. And the interesting thing is on screen, Carrie and Olvir just kind of disappear. Mm-hmm. They don't have any resolution at the end, whereas here we at least find out, oh, yeah, they're going after the chief that left them behind. They're going to get their revenge. Absolutely. But we don't get that on the TV version. The really interesting thing about all that stuff with Olvier is that most of it is not in the TV version. Is it in the TV version that he knows about this because someone in his family has a disease? So that, he knows that's it. about the secret treatment? That's the only thing. I can't even remember if he mentions that it's his sister. How do you know about Lazar's disease? My sister died of it. On Terminus? Yes. They supposedly offer a cure. But I've never met anyone who came back. 
it's kind of fun that instead of being somber and heroic about it, uh, he's shown to be a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a, that's harsh in context, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But he runs away and hides, as anyone would. For that matter, that sequence where the robot takes Nissa away and he's having that fugue moment because he's trapped in the past, because he's yes. reliving all this. On screen, it doesn't look like that. On screen, it just looks like Olvier's just standing there and watching Nissa get dragged off because he just couldn't be bothered. Hmm. Yeah, probably because the actor doesn't have anything to work with. He doesn't have this book to work with. He has no <laughs> idea that his character is supposed to be feeling these things. And for that matter, that actor probably wouldn't be able to do anything with it, even if he did have all this background story. But yeah, that character is so much better fleshed out here. Fleshed out, yeah, well, I should Yeah, well, he's say. kind of a chicken, but then he, he also pulls it together. Exactly. Oh, and the Lazar that you were talking about, the one that you thought was going to be his sister, the one I call Patient Exposition Zero. <laughs> yeah, it, she's just about as useless on the page, unfortunately, as she is on screen, though I have a nice little bit of headcanon about her. And it's this. Nissa says that she's going to stay because she is convinced that people are being sent home with radiation poisoning, or they're being sent home cured for now, but the disease is going to come back. There's a high level of relapse. And I thought it was unclear whether or not anyone had ever actually come back, whether or not they had been cured. I, I don't know, but I think that particular character is somebody who relapsed, and that's how she knows about all the things she knows about. Because why else would she? Yeah. And unless, of course, there are all these people who are really just not wanting to talk about the fact that they've been treated for this horrible mm. AIDS analog disease. I'm fairly certain that Gallagher didn't have that in mind when he wrote this, but it definitely reads that way. And that they're still willing to pass along these rumors of what happens on Terminus, because what happens in Terminus never stays in Terminus. I learned something new this year. Maybe that's the whole comment. <laughs> Yay, me! I learned something new. Okay. Uh, I, I'm surely not the only person who every year during cancer, Breast Cancer Awareness Month thinks, I think we're all well aware <laughs> of breast cancer, <laughs> the need for research, the need for effective treatments that many people have it. Moving on now, it's not really helping them to dye everything pink, etc. I didn't understand that various cancer awareness campaigns were started in a time when cancer had a huge social stigma. Yeah. This is a time before I remember. Mm -hmm. um, in the early 20th century and early post-war era, the cancer diagnosis was something to keep hush-hush. Yes. When it was less understood, what caused it, and whether or not it was associated with maybe debauched living or maybe bad genes, and you don't want people to know that you have cancer in your family, maybe maybe you could pass it on to your children, etc. I didn't understand there was huge social stigma, and it was a diagnosis that people would often conceal. Yes. Hmm. So the origin of different disease awareness campaigns, I realized that cancer was, was one of these campaigns, was to destigmatize it and make it a normal thing to talk about, to talk about the causes, talk about treatments, talk about how people you, may, you know may have this or that disease. So I thought it was more of a cancer analog. Hmm. Okay. 
I, mm, I could but see maybe that. it works for almost every disease that is not yet well understood. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Like, what, where does it come from? How do you get it? How do you contract it? Best not to talk about it. Best not to let people know that you have it. Best not to let people know that someone in your family has it because you've been in contact with them. You share some genetics. Who knows? You may also be contaminated. And then that creates this space for the flourishing of quack cures, oral tradition instead of research, all these different dark commercial ventures that preys upon people who are concealing the diagnosis because of the stigma. So we have this ship with no manifest sailing around and the pirates, the pirates surely should be aware of these ships by now, but the pirates think it must be something valuable because it's going to these wealthy planets and picking up cargo that's undocumented. Something else is going on. Yeah, but it's really just the Trump family going and getting their gonorrhea treated. I don't know. I'm going to chop that part out. So don't even react to it. It's terrible. (laughs) Too late. Yeah. Gonorrhea reaction gift. What? (laughs) You can get that out too. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah. Stigmatized diseases. And the ironic thing about this story is the fact that it should have gotten pushback from that advocacy group for lepers because leprosy at this time in the 1980s had exactly that sort of reputation. It was seen as a mysterious disease. It was seen as something that you don't want them to touch you. Oh, my God. Whatever you do, don't let them touch you. Yeah, it's very odd how the story is actually reflecting the society that comes out of. Mm-hmm. Much more so than a lot of the stories that we tend to read. What else did we like? The doctor was no stranger to other people's spacecraft. was actually a nice little... <laughs> <laughs> nice observation. Yes, the yeah. way that he, he knew how older knew the technology was based on how they designed them. And talked about how newer spacecraft were just run on AI. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a nice little note about how it was challenging. It was unfamiliar with the controls, but since they were laid out mathematically and instead of by a linguistic scheme, he was able to figure it out. There's a, there are several nice little notes, and details like that mm-hmm. throughout the story about how people figure things out thinking on their feet in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so, as we talked about with Tegan and Nessa, there are a lot of nods to how they get through these different situations and then how Turlo gets through situations that I guess I noticed the first time through how there's also, there are also those nods for how the doctor gets through this situation. He's seen a lot of spaceships. Mm -hmm. He also prefers physical media to computers. Yes. I love that bit where he refers Nissa to Catch-22. <laughs> I do not see how Nissa of Trocken would have understood a book like Catch-22, but I love the fact that the doctor refers her to it anyway. Yeah. I love that he, sa- he says something like, last third of 20th century. <laughs> earth, yes. earth, earth literature, last, last third of 20th century. <laughs> right. A third quarter. So. Third quarter. Third quarter, yeah. Yeah, that also sets up why she's using the abacus, because we don't get anything like the abacus. We don't get that bit with the beads on screen at all. Really? Yeah, we don't get that at all. Pretty major plot point here. Yeah, well, yeah, you'd think so. Well, how did they, wait, wait, how did they discover the janitorial robot? They just come across it. Hmm. They round a corner. It's not picking up their breadcrumbs? Nope, they round a corner, it's there, they back off, and that's it. 
<laughs> yeah, those robots are not nearly as menacing in the TV version as they are here, because they're not menacing at all, but all that is gone. So even something big like that that explains why she has the abacus, she's using the abacus because she used to rely on Adric's mathematics to do these things for her. Adric is gone. She's got to do it herself. She doesn't want to use a computer. She's using an abacus. And then you end up having the abacus be a thing in the book that they uh, do as a, uh, as a series of breadcrumbs. Yeah. No, none of that. None of that is on screen, hmm. except for her mention of having Adler do the maths for her. That's it. Oh. That's the only thing. So I had a major misapprehension. The first several times there was a reference to the liner recorded announcement about how there would be sterilization procedures. And I know it's, you know, they're going to sterilize the ship from germs. I thought this would, and they, you know, say there will be, uh, basically, this is to flush out the stragglers. The strip's going to be, the ship's going to be sterilized. It's unlikely anyone would survive the process. I thought this meant vasectomies, tubal ligations. (laughs) 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 Any of the passengers who were found would be sterilized. Oh, God. But the instruments would not be. I seriously thought when they were talking about no stragglers. (laughs) You'll be sterilized and are unlikely to survive the procedure. They were talking about an incredibly violent, brutal scenario Mm. of sterilizing individuals on the spot, which really confused me because, like, they're already really ill, right? (laughs) They're already sending them off to an isolation colony, right? (laughs) Well, that would make sense if they were rounding up all the ill and they were taking them somewhere to die. But these are people whose families have presumably paid a lot of money for them to be on the ship. I wish I were trying to be funny, but I thought it was just an extremely dark note in the book. <laughs> that is hilarious. I, I don't even know how that misapprehension would arise, but <laughs> that is hilarious. I will also say that I adore the Garm, but only as he appears on the page. Did he migrate from Peladon? No. Or, no, he's too intelligent. Yeah. Do you think he has planets where they have beasts? That's, I mean, that's a really broad category in the story, isn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> where they have a beast running around who's presumed to be some sort of savage, but turns out to be... In this case, uh, actually quite intelligent and altruistic. and and, seeming like Agador. Yes, the the beast in Peladon was, I guess, not particularly intelligent, but was also not the brutal savage he was thought to be. Okay. I I could see Agador being altered by the company. I didn't think it was literally the same species, just being smart, but uh, he was teased in a similar way. Mm. There's some kind of creature, huge creature, out there prowling around. Don't let him get you. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, especially when you see him on screen and he looks like a giant stuffed toy. <laughs> he is just, he's just so adorable and so out of place in the story. And then when he talks, it's even worse. I drive the disease from him. All would die, but most survive. <laughs> it's like, okay. Whereas here on the page, the way the Garm is described, I mean, the fact that we even get an explanation of what the Garm is, we do not get anything on screen. 
All we're told is that the veneer take the Lazars to the Garm, the Garm takes them somewhere to be cured, and that he's under someone's control, but it doesn't say whose. You assume it's Do the veneers. Do we have the whole interaction with the doctor sort of taking control of him? Yeah. And then the Garm... Asking for his freedom. Paraphrase greatly saying, do you feel like I've done a good job for you here? Yes. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you'll consider turning me loose? Yeah. We do get that. But he just basically says, if my job here is done, please free me. And that does happen. But none of the rest of it is there. None of the rest of it, say, of the veneer wondering whether or not the creature is actually sentient or not, which of course it is. None of that's in the televised story. So you've just got this big, giant, stuffed animal walking around being menacing when there's no way in hell it could be menacing. And here on the page, it's actually mysterious and menacing in its own way, but only because you really don't know much about it. And it's described as mysterious and menacing, and you get some background on it. But you don't get any of that on screen. I never got the feeling that it was menacing. Really? I, I No. Like, even the descriptions of it, I felt like this is the trope of the, the noble savage that... Uh- Oh. This is this is a beast that is no one interacts with it, so they expect that it's an idiot and it will not interact with them. And it, it, but I never got the feeling that it was something that they should be afraid of. It's mm. just it's just big, and it has protected from radiation. But you know we don't ever hear about it like hurting anyone or chasing anyone or doing anything scary it's just big i pictured as like a just like a big saint bernard so it's just like a big dumpy dog like (laughs) oh and it is a dumpy dog on screen except it looks more like a terrier Mm. in the face anyway but i think you're right i think the reason why it comes across as menacing on the page if at all is because patient exposition zero essentially says, oh, the Garm will take you. You'll find out. And it's like, well, actually, that's not a bad thing because the Garm is going to try to cure you. Yeah. Yeah. Any any of the times it's ever brought up, it's, it is mysterious. But I never got that it was like mysterious in a bad way of like, they're going to chop you up and put you into a meat grinder and we actually make sausages out of you. <laughs> That's actually exactly where I thought they were going. If you survive the sterilization, the garm takes you to the sausage factory. Yeah, to the sausage factory. Um, yeah, it, it is kind of strange on screen too, because on screen you never really get a sense of anybody leaving terminus once they've arrived you get the sense that terminus means terminus as in terminal this is where you go to die this is terminus where all the masses come to die we're on a leper ship we're all going to die yeah and yet on the page it definitely is not it's more a case of people do leave. It's just the veneer never see them because they don't have to deal with them. The Garm sees them, but isn't going to report back to anybody because it's under control. Those people are going to go back to their lives, presumably cured. Well, I guess not talking about where they've been, maybe? Yes. So you're talking about how wonderfully cured. They wouldn't want to talk about how they needed a cure to begin with? They wouldn't want to talk about the fact they had the disease to begin with. Yeah, yeah. it would be one of those things where their family would say something along the lines of, oh, yeah, they've been feeling poorly, they went off on a vacation, they'll be back in two weeks, they should be fine. 
without letting anybody know that they've got this presumably life-threatening illness. And maybe possibly, you know, they don't even bring up something like an NDA that, you know, you can't talk about what happened to you here because it is something that is proprietary. We don't right. want other people knowing that this this disease can be cured by radiation because then anyone can cure it and then we mm-hmm. lose money. So what happens on Terminus stays on Terminus. Yeah. Yeah. But also the thing that didn't seem to quite fit together with the scenario of suggesting that there is a hope of survival and cure and return to society is that most of these people appear to be visibly horrifically ill mm-hmm. in such a way that they seem to be largely like very late stage and they didn't seem to all quite flow together as a scenario. Yeah, and if there are any flaws in the story, that's probably the biggest flaw right there, that certain things are not quite as well explained as they could be. I thought it was going to be just a hospice colony, or they were promised a hospice colony, but then maybe it was the sausage factory instead. But Right. You know, shuffle your loved ones off to die comfortably mm-hmm. and discreetly and in a dignified way. Yeah, but then there would be no point in having the radiation or the engine that's about to blow up and destroy the universe yeah. and all of that. It's sort of a classic trope of what if the fortune teller actually has some kind of supernatural insight, that sort of thing. What if the medicine show is actually selling some genuine cures? Mm-hmm. They just don't understand how to control it or particularly care to. Yeah. Yeah. Something else I thought was going to happen was that the Nissa was going to discover that the Hydromel was actually just like a placebo. Yeah, and... At first, it seems like that's where they're going, because they say that some of it might as well be colored water, but they have to keep that slave force alive somehow. Right, right. Interesting thing, Hydromel actually is another one of those Norse mythology references, because Hydromel is the French word for mead. (laughs) So, yeah, there's this weird, thin veneer of Norse mythology over this whole thing, but how it actually relates to the themes of the story, I just couldn't tell you. Mm -mm. I don't know enough about it. One other thing that kind of falls apart for me, we don't really get an answer for, is how Bohr knew what was happening Mm -hmm. and understood about the ship. Yeah. And it's no clearer on screen. There's the sense that he has been monitoring the radiation levels because I guess one of the veneer is tasked with making sure that if the radiation levels go up, they have to retape where the forbidden zone starts so that they themselves don't happen to go into it. Yeah, I thought he just figured out just enough that he wanted to know more. Yeah. But it was also kind of on the verge of a break with reality, maybe. Possibly. But I thought we were supposed to not be sure if he had really he was really onto something, or if he was just kind of losing his senses. Well, he's very much onto something, as it turns out. That he can see that the radiation levels are climbing, and then he finds out, oh, it's because of this, and then he tears down the power lines and almost kills himself. Leading to one of the best characters in the book, I really love Bohr. He's one of the few bright spots of the TV version, too, because the actor playing him gets kind of this grasp of, yeah, this guy is just completely harmless. He's dying, but he's actually kind of cheerful about it. Yeah. There's nice characterization for just about everybody in this book. 
Even Velgard has a little bit of depth. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I do want to say something about that, too, because that scene where he and Olvir have the fight on screen, it's just it's embarrassing the entire (laughs) the fact that they're having to be really careful with the fight scene because the armor is just really loud and clunky because it's plastic (laughs) makes that fight scene horrible and then you get this whole thing of i recognize your moves you were trained by so-and-so weren't you it just seems to come out of nowhere (laughs) on screen well i thought i but in the book i thought that worked very well as they figure out that he got here because the same pirate captain had basically uh sold him out taken a plea deal for him yeah yes basically given the uh, anti-piracy task force a few underlings yes or something like that in exchange for getting off something yeah which is my point on the page it works much better because one we know olvier only turned piracy because of this experience of his whole family losing their fortune, trying to get their, uh, his sister treated and failing at it. And then he's been trained by the same guy because Valgard was also a pirate at one point. But on screen, we don't get that whole follow-up of he turned me in, which is fine because that's what I would have done to him too. We don't get that. There's so many things we don't get a follow-up on. In fact, the biggest problem that I have with the TV version is the fact that that whole mention of the pilot moving in slow motion because he's in a different time zone is not in the TV version. I've got to say, I thought it was the weakest point of the plot. The idea that something is moving slowly because it's on a program time line in a pocket of time that's moving slowly, but that you could get the system, you could get a lever to move by pulling it really hard. Yeah. Seemed uh, kind of a weak plot point to me. Kind of like the construction of that sentence. Well... (laughs) That is in the, that is in the TV version. The explanation for it isn't, which is kind of crazy, given that apparently when they dressed the set, they put cobwebs on the pilot, and Peter Davison objected because he said, "No, no, no, he's moving in time very, very slowly, so there wouldn't be cobwebs." It's like, okay, yeah. but where's the mention of that in the script? But if you have a lever moving really slowly through time, if you just pull it really hard, it works. Yeah. You just need a really big wolf dude to pull it hard. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not a perfect story by any means. It's so much better than what we get on the screen. But you're describing everything bad as already, yeah, fair to be dealt with from the episode. Mm-hmm. And we do get Nissa's goodbye scene and the Doctor's reaction to it, which I think is really just incredibly good writing. When the Doctor realizes... Deep inside, he'd known it. He'd known from the moment he'd seen her again, eyes blazing with righteous fury at the poor excuse for a caring process that she'd been put through. Lives were changed by such experiences, and there was no going back. And it's like, ah. And then he's sad that yet another one is leaving him. And yet that gives him a kind of immortality. And it's like, yeah. But it was eyes blazing from, and I thought it was going to be that hot pirate (laughs) 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 which would not which again isn't a a bad story to tell but it's it's been done to death especially in this series but also it wouldn't fit what came before for this character no no but this did because we've already shown that if she has a weakness that makes her hot-headed it's always being a bleeding heart always being compassionate when she does things that are 
unwise. It's because she's trying too hard to help. She's too gullible to someone who's trying to manipulate her through compassion. Mm -hmm. Which is heroic, it's also from compassion in a way that works for this character. And like I said, we're accustomed in modern stories to the companion being the star of the last story. Or whenever a character is leaving a TV show, they're the star of the last story they appear in. And it was a little disappointing that she's still not really the star of this story, but... This is the first one we've read in a long time where we wanted to see more of her. Mm-hmm. And so they're just like, oh, and also Nissa's in the back with a pocket calculator. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Sangster has talked about the fact that this is kind of useless in the series, but she really is rehabilitated by the audios. Well, and there are these moments when you realize she's actually one of the better suited companions to be on the TARDIS because she's not operating at Romana levels of knowledge, but she's much better informed than most of them. Yeah, she works much better with the Fifth Doctor than the others do. And much more cool-headed. Not Romana levels of cool-headed once again, but much cooler-headed than a lot of the companions around her, especially when she's being compared to Tegan and Adric. But it seems, it seems like it's so easy to make her seem useful in a story, and we've seen it done so little. Yeah, agreed. Or once again... David, try to figure out how the ship works. Try to figure out how to fly it, how to fix it. (laughs) Nissa, do some research. Anything else we want to say about this one? Like a line here, he was simply a tired bureaucrat and problems tended to form long cues for his attention. Yeah, that kind of does boil down what Eric's life is like. Because he's the closest thing you get to a villain in the story. And he's not much of a villain. And it's interesting, and I will point this out, this is yet another story in which nobody dies. Hmm. Nobody dies on screen. If one of the Lazars dies, they do it off screen, but nobody actually dies. Kind of nice to have that. Yeah. Another little in-story explanation I like is that the reason Ovir and Carrie are so good at navigating the liner, even though they're no, they haven't spent any more time there than the uh, doctor and companions have is they've been uh, in hypnosis studying the plans. Mm-hmm. That was a nice little in-story explanation that it's once again kind of interest. You want to learn more about it as opposed to it feeling stupid and convenient. Mm-hmm. So, shall we go to Goodreads? I think we should. Okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.37, which is actually slightly lower than the last book. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. Michael in our Goodreads group gives it three stars and says, It feels like the Fifth Doctor's era falls into an era that wasn't especially memorable when it came to the Target novels. Okay, I'm trying to parse that sentence a little bit. Most of Davison's stories get good adaptations, but there really isn't one that stands out like the early entries or some of the later ones in the Seventh Doctor's era. Which brings us to Terminus. This one may be, in my personal running, for the best written Target novel of the era, or at least that's what my memory tells me. I picked it up not long after it aired on my local PBS station and was impressed that it was longer than most standard Target books of the day. 
Lidecker doesn't really change much of the overall story from what we see on screen. Well, he wouldn't have been allowed to because John Nathan Turner wouldn't have let him. He, he adds a bit of background to the supporting characters and tries a bit of world building. He does manage to make the corridor running seem a bit better on the printed page and the commentary on the healthcare system seems a lot less bonk bonk on the head here. <laughs> the audiobook is read by Stephen Pacey who is connected more to Blake Seven than Doctor Who, but his work is solid enough. Also in our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three and a half stars and says, I was surprised to find that I was struggling to read this book this time around, so I paused reading and watched a couple of episodes. Then I restarted the book and sailed through it. I think that despite its many faults, the TV version had a certain atmosphere that is difficult to transfer to prose. The look of the liner, particularly the interface with the temporarily functioning chameleon circuit and of Terminus itself, though not helped by being overlit, was nevertheless effective. There are quite a few minor but significant improvements in the book, not just lighting and sound. The garm was never intended by the writer to be seen in any detail. On screen, he looks like something rejected by Sesame Street. And again, the lighting doesn't help. Here, he's much more imposing. The most notorious scene in this season is Nissa's strip tease. It apparently came about because the only reference photos the writer had for Nissa were of her in her Trocken costume with its high collar. As originally written, Nissa had difficulty breathing, so she tore away the collar and the brooch pinned on it. When it came to shooting the scene, her costume was completely different, and the only article of clothing that would be at all appropriate to remove was her skirt. How that garment would restrict her breathing is anyone's guess. In the book, it's a bodice which, being worn on the upper body, is much more likely to affect breathing. Despite my struggle to get started, once I did, I really enjoyed it. And finally, Jack also gives it three stars and says, like John Lydiger's other contribution to this range, this book is written in a single chapter. I got used to this fairly quickly, and it actually felt a little strange reading the next novelization with chapters afterwards, as the pace in this book doesn't need to stop for a cliffhanger every dozen pages. As a matter of fact, fun fact, we get to page 59 before we get to the end of episode one. Really? Yeah, that's how the pacing is in this book, that Gallagher takes his time unpacking episode one, and then he kind of condenses everything else, which is nice. I particularly enjoyed the beginning of this story on TV as well, with things going wrong in the TARDIS and the mystery of exactly what's happening and where they're ending up. In this book, I particularly liked hearing Tegan's thoughts through this beginning section, and the fact that Adric kept coming up felt realistic as it's not been too long since he left them. Turla comes across as thoroughly creepy throughout. It was interesting to realize that the two of them are assumed to be possibly still safely in the TARDIS for the story, and the Doctor only sees this isn't the case right near the end, which is reminiscent of Ian and Barbara's experience of the Romans. And I love his reaction, too, where Nyssa has to say, Doctor, tell her you're pleased to see her, and he says, I am pleased to see her, but she shouldn't be here. <laughs> yes. This is Nissa's last story, and as companion exits go, it's not too bad. I would have appreciated a little more insight into the character's thoughts in some scenes where the dialogue felt a little rushed, but this is often the case in these target novelizations with their short page counts. <sighs> so, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'm going to give this one a four. I really enjoyed this book. From beginning to end, I was engaged. Uh, once it got going, I really liked a lot of the character moments like like we said earlier 
Tegan and Turlo were a great pair together. The Doctor with Carrie and then Nyssa as well. Like everyone felt like they had enough to do that fit their character. I loved getting inside of everyone's heads. I know one of the other reviewers said we didn't get to see what was on screen, but having not seen this, I felt like I totally understand the space that they're in, and I loved it. So I'm going to give this a four. Okay. And Allison? I feel like I should, uh, to quote the book, stay in my assigned role to uh, ingratiate and subvert. But uh, the reality is I really liked this one a lot as well. I'm going to go, I think, 3.25 is what I gave the last one. I'm going to go 3.5. It felt more like a novel than anything that we have read in quite some time, as opposed to uh, adaptation. And as for me, I gave Warrior's Gate a 4.75. So I would feel remiss in giving this anything less than than that, though I do have to knock off a couple points for the few flaws that are still carried over onto the page. But otherwise, I would give this a 4.5. This really is an incredibly strong book for a story that is not incredibly strong. And I like to give higher scores to novelizations that actually expand upon and make better the stories that they're adapting. And this absolutely does as you will both see when you finally watch this. So, good luck to you on that one. (laughs) Okay, you recommended that we not do so. Yeah, well, ahead of reading the book. Now that you have read the book, you should see it and see what I'm talking about when I complain about that story so much. So, thank you both. Mm And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss the novelization of Enlightenment, in which we wrap up the Black Guardian trilogy. Thank goodness. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Stay away from the sterilization, robot. Doctor Who Podcast Network.